Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 344. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 344 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, Tim Palmer, making a second appearance here on Working Class Audio. His original appearance was six years ago. He was on episode number 25 in the early days of the show. He is, of course, well-known for his work with Pearl Jam, David Bowie, and Tin Machine, U2, Tears for Fears, Cutting Crew, and I'm super happy to have Tim back on the show. He's a great person to talk to, which I think you'll find here in the interview, and I think you'll get a lot of great information. So, Tim Palmer, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about thinking and working globally. So you are a recording professional, and I don't care if you're in game sound, music, uh, audio cleanup, forensics, uh, restoration, field recording, whatever it is you do, you might be working with a lot of local talent. And that's a great thing because focusing in on the area that you live is certainly important and probably critical for your survival in the long run. However, do not underestimate the power of thinking and working globally. There's a big, beautiful world out there of people who need audio seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all the time, year in, year out. Somebody needs the services that we all provide. And yes, working locally is important, but the possibilities of growth and really taking on challenging and new and interesting projects can happen on a global scale. Now, it's the 21st century. Really, there is no excuse to not have some sort of web presence out there. You have a talent. You have something special about you, and you need to let people know about it. If you had a little studio downtown in your town or city, depending on where you live, you might put a sign out and advertise your services. Or you would have business cards or some sort of listing somewhere to let people know that you're available. So take the time, if you haven't, for those Luddites out there who don't have a web presence, I'm pleading with you. Please let the world know you are here, you have something to offer, and you can help people out with their audio needs. And it doesn't matter where they live. And in fact, it doesn't matter if there's a language barrier because there are ways around those things. Uh, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. They don't sponsor this show. I have no affiliation with them, but I just like it because it's a professional place to go. I don't have to deal with people's politics or their food pictures. I'm just dealing in business. And I like that. And I see musicians on there. I see other recording professionals on there. And the person I have to credit with really getting me on LinkedIn is my friend Brad Gillis, who is, of course, a guitar player in the band Night Ranger, who happens to be my neighbor. And we've gone out to coffee. I've been to his house and helped him out with some Night Ranger stuff. 
And Brad and I just had a conversation one day about LinkedIn, and he convinced me that that was the place to be. And I could see that Brad is always on there posting, you know, Night Rangers playing here, or they're playing there, and he loves it, and he gets a lot of, you know, people paying attention. So that's what convinced me was Brad's activity on there. And I've found great freedom in going there to do that because, you know, once again, we're not dealing in food pictures, family pictures, uh, politics. It's all just business. Yeah, amazing. And people are generally uh, very supportive and very encouraging. So you might find that you're also going to hit a whole new level of audience because maybe you're one of the people out there that has taken my advice and you are diversifying a bit with your audio activities. You know, maybe music is your passion, but you know, doing a little audio cleanup or a little dialogue editing or audio books or something like that has uh, started to occupy a little bit of your time. If people know you have this capability and you're on there posting positive, useful information, I think you might find yourself getting some business out of it. Not guaranteeing it, but it's a possibility. So have a presence on LinkedIn. If you are just really hesitant to put a website together, try to get over it. Try to make yourself a single one-page website. I use Wix for mattboudreau.com. I don't hire anybody to help me out with it. Uh, in fact, I've stopped hiring web designers long ago. I know web designers out there who are hearing this are probably going to send me hate mail, but really, you can put together a very quick website with, you know, a Wix or a Squarespace or one of those. And once again, there's I'm no affiliation with those folks, but they're great tools out there for you to, of course, put something simple together. Just a one-page thanks, you know, with a picture of you and what you do, how you can be contacted. You want to put a discography on there? Great, do it. You want you want to list the the games or the films or the projects you've worked on? Put it on there. Keep it simple, but get it out there. Don't belabor the uh, color and the design for so long that you just don't put it out there. And then update it. I always hear people, yeah, you know, my website's a little old and I haven't really touched it up. That's generally because a lot of those people who say that hired somebody else and they don't know how to make updates and they forgot the password and how to get in and what to do and they feel kind of hamstrung so get your web presence together in short get out there make yourself known and then the next thing i'd like you to do for those of you who deal in music is get yourself on Bandcamp and start to explore music in other parts of the world there are so many independent bands out there on Bandcamp. you can do a search by region i think by city or state or country, and you can find, I don't know, hip-hop metal in Arkansas or something like that, right? You can find just about any kind of genre out there that you want to work with. Maybe start following some bands and then consider even reaching out and saying, you know, hey, I love what you do. I'd like to put my name in the hat for your next record, for mixing, for mastering, whatever it is. But, you know, reaching out and getting out there is really the key. Connecting and networking is the key. Doing it on a global scale really is going to be very useful. And the final thought on all of this is, is if you don't get a hit after two weeks, please don't give up. It's not like that. You got to play the long game. Put stuff out there, update your website, let people know you're there. If you can make at least one connection a year, 
that is a new project for you to work on. That's another opportunity for you to shine and to help somebody out to do their project and help see it to the finish line. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Tim Palmer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. It was 318 episodes ago, which was, according to wow. Google, 6.099 years ago. Wow. That's, yeah. quite, that's a lot of podcasts you've done there, mate. Yeah, that is. Yeah. That's, and that's a chunk of time that's passed for you and I both. In a nutshell, what would you say have been the biggest changes from our last discussion of six years ago? Well, obviously, the whole pandemic thing came along, which was very uh, life-changing for so many of us. But 
the truth is that things didn't change too much at all in my world. I'm still in the bunker and uh, I still carried on mixing through it. And I was very grateful to be able to do that. It really didn't affect me too much in my working life. It obviously affected the family and the people around us. But um, as far as keeping busy, the COVID-19 thing did very little. So that was a relief, I must be honest. As far as work, I've continued to dabble in different genres. I've done a lot of jazz records. I made a record with one of my favorite bands from when I was in school, the Psychedelic Furs, last year. And I've carried on my relationship with people like Vila Vallo from the band Him. I did another, I've been working on his solo stuff. I also worked again with Wayne Hussey from The Mission. I've, I've actually, it's amazing how at this point in your life, when you've built up a roster or a group of artists that you've worked on for so many years, you, they actually come back, if, assuming that you do a good job, but they come back and uh, it's really nice to work with people that you worked with maybe 20, 20 25 years ago. What do you think the key is to uh, getting people to come back? Obviously doing good work, but is there more to it than that? Well, I think that when you're prepared to go the extra mile for an artist, they really pick up on that. Mixing has become so much more than the traditional style of mixing these days, where at the stage of the mixing, you can add something that you feel is missing to the arrangement or that you feel is missing to the song. And rather than just doing the barest minimum, if you're prepared to actually give the love that the song requires, and whether that's maybe some editing or some, some new parts or some new adjustment to the arrangement, the artists really feel that you're, you're really taking care of them. And you know that's part of the reason that they're prepared to come back. I mean, I've always been the sort of producer that feels that my job is to just try and help the artist get to the goal. And you know, there's a famous quote that Reeves Cabrels from Tin Machine used to say. He said that you're not the word, you're merely a highlighter pen. And I think that in a way that's sort of true really, because as a producer and a mixer, you're not the artist. And if you think you are, I think you're getting off track a little bit, but you're helping them find the beauty in what they're doing and try and make it as great as it can be. And uh, I think the artists really pick up on the fact if they know that you're really taking a lot of care with their work, they will want to come back to you. And if you're easy to deal with and easy to work with and fun to work with, it's going to work out. I think some analogies could be made for comparisons of plumbers or electricians. When a plumber or electrician comes to your house, they're going to do work, but ultimately you've got to live in the house and the artist has to live in the house, so to speak. Totally agree. I think it, it goes both ways. I know from when I have somebody, whether, like you said, it's a plumber or somebody at the minute fixing my carriage door, I go out of my way to make sure that they feel comfortable in my home. I offer them something to drink because I want them to think, I like being here. I'm going to do my best work because I feel comfortable. And you see people in restaurants who are rude to waiters. It drives me insane. I always think, why, why do you think that's going to make this particular waiter give you better service and look after your food after the way that you've just treated them? So it's a two-way street, definitely. I mean, you, I, I know that when I'm working with an artist, like any mixer or engineer, sometimes when they're not careful in the way that they word their mix changes, it irks me and I have to bite my lip because... I think, okay, there's a, there's a much nicer way of putting that than the way that you just did it there. But, you know, it's definitely a two-way street. If the artist is good to you, then you're going to be very good to them. And I agree with you. I really 
lose my patience when I see people treat service people like waiters and waitresses in in bad ways. It's just it doesn't feel right. Yeah, and it, it, the truth is that, as I said, that they we're providing a service to the artist and. If we get treated well, we want to come back and help them again, because there's no doubt that if you have a bad experience with somebody, when they call you up to work with them again, you might put them at the bottom of the list. One of the tricks I've learned of late in the modern world of mixing, whereas we get our mixed comments via text messages and emails in the place of sitting down in the studio with somebody and spending an afternoon with, with them, which is a dreadful shame, I think, but that's the way things are. But one of the things I've figured out is I must never open the mix notes on my iPhone because a small comment of maybe three or four lines on an iPhone, once you've got a few comments going, you start scrolling and you you really think, oh my God, they hate it. There's so much to do. And yet when you open it up on the big screen in your studio, it's actually only a couple of small things. So I try not to open up my mix notes if I'm out to dinner and start reading because they just seem a lot, it seems a lot more depressing when you're scrolling, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I, and I would assume that we're very much alike and that we, in all of us, when I say not just you and I, but everybody, that we're, we're aiming to please. We want them to be pleased with the work that we've done. So when we open changes for mixes or masters and we see some language or the way the email's phrased, it can really like chew away at our hearts a little bit. And yeah. I've found that I respond better if I just say, hey, let me give you a call just to discuss your notes. And I find that when I do that, it humanizes the person I haven't been talking with or mm. communicating with. Do you yeah. find that helps for you? I think that's a that's a really good. I don't do that too often, but I think that's a very smart thing to do. Actually, I mean, there's no doubt about it that in the same way that an artist is a, an emotional being, we're emotional beings too. And if you start off on an aggressive footing with an email about some changes. You can put people's back up, whereas it's far better to let, let's talk for a couple of lines about how great everything is and what you like about what I've spent 12, 14 hours doing. And then towards the end, maybe slip in a few things that you'd like to change. And then we're all happy. It's as simple as that, isn't it? I wonder if beyond what we're talking about here, if you have other tips for, for producers or engineers who are interfacing remotely with artists. Well, I, I think that what you just said a second ago makes a lot of sense since the COVID-19 pandemic and the Zoom and the fact that we all use the Zoom platform so much. I have found that there's no excuse to get the artist in your face, even if it is via the technology of Zoom. For many years, because I was working remotely, I would be relying on emails and texts. And I have found that a lot of the projects I've done recently, especially if they're from another country, I can sit and discuss things face to face and it and it takes a lot of the pressure out of the situation and, and it gives it a human side and and you can laugh about some things together because it's very difficult sometimes to get the gist of or at least get the wrong idea about some things that are written in emails because some people are just very are very poor at the way that they write their um, descriptions of things. So if you see them, you can decipher what it is they're trying to achieve. And part of our job for, for so many years was looking at someone in the eye and being able to convince them that they need to change something or how we need to adjust their arrangement. And we lost that when we went remotely. And it was a big part of the sort of skills or part of the, our job description was being able to sit in front of someone and convince them. And the Zoom platform definitely has brought a little bit of that back because 
they can see you eye to eye and the way that you explain something, you can make your point much clearer than sitting, you know, writing a couple of lines, which may or may not come across as being upsetting to them hearing somebody criticize their arrangement. Whereas if you can sit and use the Zoom platform, you can explain it much more uh, diplomatically, let's say. The things have changed quite a bit because of shifts in the industry and shifts in how we work. And I've heard you use the term predicting, a combination of producing yeah. and mixing. And I wonder if you could expound a little bit on, if you compare the past versus now in terms of workflow and what one has to do to survive as an audio pro. Well, traditionally, when an album was made, when I first started out, you'd have a producer and you would have engineers that worked underneath the producer. And the producer basically called all the shots. The engineers were helping the producer record and make the best sounding record that they could. And when it came to the mixing stage, whoever was the engineer on the record would also work with the same producer and finish the job. Now, of course, that's, that's before the 80s, when I think it was somebody like Tom Lord Algy when he was mixing Stevie Winwood. The, the record companies began to think, okay, well, let's get a fresh perspective at the end. And they would hand off a project that had been lovingly cared for by a producer and an, a team of engineers to somebody new who would give it a fresh spin. And of course, there was most definitely some pluses and many times there's some minuses because, you know, how can you understand a project as well as the people that have created it for so many months? So there was definitely good and bad in that. But there's no doubt that now we've taken it to another level because we've introduced the fact that the budgets are small, artists are working many times on independently or, or an independent label. So having the time to refine the recording process just doesn't exist. We could spend a week or more just setting up and doing a few drum tracks back in the 80s or 90s, at least a day getting a sound. But a lot of the time for the records I'm working on, they, they may have made the whole record in a week. So when it comes to the mix stage now, rather than being very precious about what is it that I have in front of me, someone has spent a lot of time crafting and carving out every EQ. Instead of that, quite often it's a case of, hey, look, we, we cut this song and we were in for two days and we did a few overdubs, but we'd love you to finish the mix. But it means a lot more than mixing because maybe the performances need to be tightened up. Maybe the guitars are rushing and you can nudge them so that they start to feel better. Maybe they need some edits done to the arrangement. Maybe they need some parts to elevate the last chorus. Maybe they need the guitars to be doubled. And if as a mixing engineer now you're of capable and you have a setup where you can put the last stuff onto the recording to really take it up a level, then uh, it's, a, it's a real bonus. And I've found that it's probably, uh, I'd say, 70, 75% of the time now that I'm predicting, as I called it, where I'll get my guitar out and add some parts to the middle eight and double the verses and get my got my sustainiac pick up on my guitar so I can add some feedback in some certain places exactly where I want it. I can do a little bit of tuning if I need to do it, although I'm very careful with auto-tune, and basically take the project to the next level. And that's sort of the world that we live in now. And unless you're prepared to do that, I think I think you'll come unstuck. It's funny how I remember days of even even in the transitionary period between modular digital multitracks like DA88s and ADATs, 
I remember there was a period of time when some artists that I work with had those and they would bring those in. Mm. And even that was more flushed out than things are today. And today things are just kind of thrown against the wall. Well, we, you know, here's the guitar amp and we uh, gave you like six different mic choices and, uh, Ugh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, no decision-making whatsoever or no bouncing whatsoever. I tell you what is incredible, though, and I'm using it on a daily basis now, is a lot of the time if I get to the artist before they've recorded, I'll always say to them, and it's pretty obvious really, but just make sure that you get a good DI of your guitars and put it on a separate track and hide it. And when I open up the files, quite often I think, oh, that's dreadful. And I have a setup here. I have my reamp pedal on the left and I've got a Kemper on the right and I could literally just select an output, plug it in and dial in the guitar sound that I want from my own amp. And that's been life-saving on many an occasion. Do you have the opportunity to spend time virtually with some of the artists you're working with before they start recording to say, okay, well, here's some things you need to consider before you send it to me for mixing? Yes. And if I can, I definitely try to do that. One of them being the DI, as we just said. Another being when you have the best sounds that you possibly feel that you have, make sure that you give me a sample of the snare drum separately and a kick drum and, you know, a hit on the cymbals. So just so that if I need to edit something around in a verse and I need some more control, I can use the same organic sounds, things like that, and also be able to discuss the arrangements. I mean, we're very fortunate that in in this world that we live in now with Pro Tools and the way that we can edit, you can be so creative at such a late stage. I mean, it's it's the mind boggles as to what you can actually achieve at the mix stage. Whereas when I started out, the idea of like taking a part and moving it around and adding it to another part of the song quite often would have taken three multi-track machines to do that, or at least two. Now these sort of things are simple and being able to edit and the minute changes that you can do as far as EQ and under snare mics, bringing up rattles and it's just incredible really. I I mean, I can't deny that I'm a big fan of the power that we have as mixing engineers now, as opposed to back then. I felt that we were were compromised. Um, It definitely helped in the sense of the producers and engineers had spent a long time getting it right before it was mixed, so you didn't need to do so much at the mix stage, whereas now you do. So thank God that we have it. So it's all it all comes hand in hand in a way. It really, I would agree 100%. It's, it's a great time, in spite of changes that may be a little bit of a monkey wrench in comparison to the past. We live in a great time. We have great power in our hands. I tell you what it does for me, though. It really gives me such a huge appreciation for when you hear, I'll give you an example. Like, like if you hear a a Bee Gees mix, right. And I listen to that and I just think, wow, that was done at a time when none of this crap existed. And it just sounds like, it sounds amazing. It sounds so well crafted, the songwriting, the, uh, the production, and it just blows my mind. And I mean, yeah, one could even go back to, you know, some of the mixes that you've done with Pearl Jam or Cutting Crew. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, actually. It's funny, isn't it? Because I often think about producers like Mutt Lang, who were known in that time for their immaculate productions. Everything was in its right spot. Everything sounded great. Everything felt great. And the reason that they felt so good and 
was so perfected was because he spent so much fucking time getting it right. I mean, he literally was famous for, let's rent in 30 Marshall cabinets until we find the one with the sweet spot. Or if you're playing like the cars, the chugs, they'd be doing 20 or 30 tracks and he'd be compiling it till it felt really solid. And what's happened with the technology now is that we can all be Mutt Lang now, finally, <laughs> because all these things that he was doing through just incredible hard work and time are now available to us quite quickly. If you want those chugs really tight, you can nudge them until they're right. He had to punch in until they felt good. There was no nudging for Mutt back in those days. And uh, he may have been able to spin something in off a half-inch machine on the backing vocals or whatever they were up to at those times. I know I used to fly in a lot of things from a half-inch machine, but all the things, all the fine-tuning that he did painstakingly, now we can do very, very fast. This is true. This is true. And I'm curious what you think is the, the state of songwriting today. You know, we have the great technologies that we can use, but are you still feeling like you're getting great songs to work on? Well, it's very difficult to sound like an old grumpy old man when you're asked this question. So I have to be very careful. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that, I mean, I grew up loving music from 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. And I can't deny that I struggle with a lot of the contemporary music. And sometimes I think that's because I think people have allowed the technology to be too much a part of the recordings or the, or the music. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I, when I hear modern recordings, I hear technology more than I hear human beings. And that's not necessarily the artist's fault. I think a lot of the time that's the producers and the labels and the mixers' fault. I mean, if you start to over-tune things and put everything in time, it just starts to sound small to me. And I mean, it definitely has a sound, and I guess that's the sound of the moment, is to have everything so compressed and so small and so tight. But it doesn't, it doesn't move me. I prefer more of an organic sort of sound. I can be as guilty as anyone else at sometimes overdoing things, and I have to check myself. But I think... There's a, there's a human quality to music that was created from the 70s, even into the 80s, really, because we, didn't, we weren't as over the top with fixing stuff as we are now, with tuning and stuff like that. But now I just hear it, yeah, as a, I, I'm hearing more machinery now than I've ever done before, and it doesn't please me. I'm familiar with your, with your discography. I know your track record. I've heard and bought and grown up on, in some cases, some of the records you've worked on. Now, a newer client who doesn't have those same life experiences of remembering the first time they heard The Cutting Crew or Pearl Jam or Tears for Fears, their respect or their understanding of where you come from, do you have to sell yourself all over again? Does it take a little bit of educating them on the process? Do you find that you're starting from scratch with, with a lot of newer clients who are younger these days? You know, it's a very competitive world out there. There's no doubt about it. There was a time when once we had the knowledge to be able to run a, a mixing board and, and a studio, you were in a, a, an elite group of people that could actually run a studio, and there wasn't that many of us. So it made it much easier to, you know, if there was a, if there was a gig opportunity, there was the, the pool of people that could actually do a good job was much smaller. Now everyone has a studio, let's be honest. Everyone is a mixer. And, and a lot of them are bloody good at it. There's no doubt about it. If you look at that website, soundbetter.com, and mm -hmm. start scrolling through the mixers, 
It's quite a scary process, really. In my particular case, I don't think that I'm getting approached by anybody to do a mix who just happened to stumble upon my name and asked me to mix something. They usually have either heard a record I've done before or known somebody that's known me. So there's never that problem that you said of having to educate anyone on the way things my history has been. But really, in a way, it sort of doesn't matter. There was a time I remember in the 90s when the mixing engineers became all powerful and some of them started to get a bit arrogant and bands would come in with their changes and they'd sort of point at the gold discs on the wall and say, hey, look at that. I never wanted to be that guy and I never will be that guy because really I want to be judged on the work that I'm doing at that particular moment. And it can't be colored by what you've done before. You, they may come to you because of what you've done before, but really they're going to listen to your mix and they're either going to say, I love it, or they're not. And uh, you have to be aware of that. And that's why you have to continue to evolve and, and do your best work. And uh, it's, it's challenging because I find that there's every time that you do a project now, people sort of expect a percentage leap and if you're given a project to mix that's pretty poorly done, you can actually elevate the song maybe 30, 35, 40% sometimes because they've done such a bad job. So you immediately get that payoff at the end. But when you get a project, you know, and I still do quite a lot of mixing for Larry Klein, who's a Grammy producer of the year, and he works in the old school. To elevate at 10%, you feel you've done well because they've, they have spent the time getting it right and they know what they want. And it's a whole different challenge. But yeah, it's, it's a strange time. I was speaking to someone the other day and they mentioned a record that I worked on. They said, oh, I love that record. I wasn't born yet when it came out, but I do love it. <laughs> and I think, oh my God, <laughs> it is freaky. I mean, if I, uh, I can't even imagine now, when I walked into a studio at 18, the guy that was uh, engineering on the session that I was making tea for, he'd made records in the 60s. And I was thinking, wow, that's shocking. Thinking about him in the same room as Dave Clark, five, you know. But now the equivalent of how many years that I've been doing, it's like walking into a studio and seeing someone who's worked with in the 1950s or something. I mean, it's just such a long way back. I can't imagine uh, what people think. Yeah, it's strange, strange times. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. What do you find that's most challenging, though, in, in making records with people today? Well, I think the most challenging thing is sort of what we've discussed is the fact that rather than being merely balancing, as far as mixing this is, rather than being balancing, a balance engineer and putting the icing on the cake, as it were, now you've really got you got to get stuck in and, and it's a big job. And that's challenging because it takes time. And I'm very fortunate that I have this room and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to support my family so I can take my time on things and get them right. But I'm not prolific in churning out mixes and making money fast, that's for sure. And that's why I'm very fortunate because sometimes one of the challenging things is it takes me two or three days to get a mix right. Because first day, you're just learning and fixing. And the second day, you might be adding and trying some ideas. And it might take you a while to figure out what the hell it is you're trying to get out of a guitar part in a chorus. And then you find something you like and then recording it. And then on the last day, you switch to the other side of your brain and you start balancing and fine tuning and getting all your sounds. And so it can easily take between two and three days to do a mix. And that's challenging, definitely. Well, fortunately, you, you live in a state that is got a lower cost of living than, say, the state I live in, in California. That's right. And so some of your decision-making, I'm sure, helps to enable you to take the time, take two or three days on a mix, because it's just not the same economic situation as far as housing prices and it's all true. the other things. I mean, it's a compromise. I mean, any time that you're having to get something done because you've run out of time or you've run out of budget, that's a compromise, isn't it? That you don't really want to be making. It's far better if you can just see it through until you're happy and then send it off. I mean, the reason I live in Texas is partly because of what you said. I was in California and I realized I had two daughters to get through college still. And I realized that I wanted to continue doing what I love. And if I owned a studio in LA and built one, it probably wouldn't work out as a happy ending. So I moved to Texas before everyone else did, thankfully, and bought this house and built, I've actually had two studios here now, and this is my second one. But that, the reason for that was so that I didn't have to compromise and I could take my time on things and I could spend more time. And I think that's one of the blessings, being able to control your hours is ultimately very creative because when you get stuck and you think, I'm losing it here. I can't see the wood for the trees. When you're working out of a studio and it's your own time and there's no pressure with a budget, you can just stop, go and see a movie, spend the rest of the afternoon with your family, and then come back and start the next day. But it certainly wasn't like that when I was in LA, when I was working out of Paramount Studios. If you had a budget, you had to get it done in a day and a half or whatever. And I, I, I think that was a conflict of interests you know, for me. It didn't work. And, you know, you have to end up making some money yourself as well. And once they started to have this idea of you were given a, 
a sort of budget to mix it and you kept what was left for yourself and you booked the studio yourself and you booked the outboard gear yourself. I thought that was a conflict of interest and I'd rather just take that budget and work out of my own place and take as long as I like to get it right. And I, I don't know if I'm correct about this and, and we're going to dip a little bit into some financial discussion here, but Texas has no income tax, if I'm correct. Correct. And I, if I'm reading what I'm reading correctly, all property taxes is appraised, let's see. Yearly. Yeah, and but your I think your property taxes are considerably lower than California's. No, that's where that's not right. Okay. Uh, they're they're going to get you one way or the other. I mean, there's no doubt that not having a state tax is great. Yeah. But when I lived in California, I lived there for 16 years and my property tax didn't go up, I don't think, hardly anything. I mean, I was still paying property tax on a house that was $300,000. But when I came to Texas, my property tax has gone up every year. There's a maximum. It can only rise by a maximum of 10% on the value of your home each year. So they'll they'll raise it and wow. your property tax will rise by 10% and, and, it, and it creeps up. And a property tax is high here, very high. Interesting. Okay. I had that wrong. Well, that's that's fascinating. But those are some things one, one could consider when basing their decision-making on where they're going to live. Because if most people, it seems these days, as we discussed, do have studios, and are working out of their their homes. You mentioned that this is your second studio in this home. No, second studio since I moved to Texas. We moved house. Okay, I built a, I built a house, and I realized I made the mistake that so many people coming from California do, where I was obsessed with the idea of living in the country with the land, and I moved a little bit too far out. And I loved the house, and it was wonderful, but. The driving in and out to take kids to school and wherever they need to be, it became easier to sit in the car park and wait for them to come out of their violin lesson or whatever it is right. uh, than it would be to drive home. And it just really wasn't working for me. So I moved a little bit closer in and built a second studio. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that process? It's quite simple, really. In this particular case, I had a house built and I just stuck an extra double garage on the side. So instead of having one double garage, I said, we'll have the second one. So they put an extra, when they built the home, they just left an extra double garage in and the doors, instead of being able to open, were sealed. So I had a big space that was a double garage size space and then a studio designer who worked on my first studio called Mark Genfen, who sadly is no longer with us. He came out and designed a little room for me that would be built like a little box within the garage. So we had space either side of the wall. So between myself in this studio mix room and the outside wall is about two or three feet. And then we, you know, there was a lot of sheetrock and everything. So I've got a really nice little dead square in the center of the double garage, but the space around it as such. So it's, it's very soundproof and I can get up in the morning because I, as I'm getting older, like so many people, I wake up early. <laughs> yeah, And uh, so I get up and my wife will, you know, not necessarily all the kids, they'll be sleeping, especially teenagers, they'll sleep till fucking 12. But I'm up and I can go into my studio and crank it at 6am and, and mix away. And, and it's, a, it's wonderful. I love it. I love having my own space because you just stop and have breakfast and then go back. And I mean, my biggest mistake, I think, as far as Mixing, and I would definitely advise any young person who's starting out to be really careful of this, is I've listened to music too loud for too long. Mm. And uh, when I go to sleep at night, I hear that uh, tinnitus and 
Luckily, it's not at a level that affects my work because I can still hear all the high end and I have my ears checked regularly, but I know it's there and I've done some damage. And if people can be a little smarter about that sort of stuff, I would definitely advise it because it's not pleasant. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you take steps when you're in, in inside environments, loud environments that might affect your hearing that you don't think are important? Do you wear earplugs or do you try to remove yourself from those situations? No, and I wish I had. I'm not proud of it. I mean, I was always one of those people who are like, ah, it's fine. <laughs> Go at the gig. I'll be in there. And I love hearing the music loud. I mean, it's funny, actually, because I'm at a point now where I actually find it hard, still hard to mix at a quiet level. If I'm trying to get things to move right in the kick drum and the, the bottom end of the vocal and the bottom end of the, the guitars and the bass and everything to work right in the low end and everything have its space, I can't do that quietly. I need to have it at a, at a decent amount of level to see how it feels here. And uh, I know that's old school, but I just don't know a way around that. I've never been able to do that. I guess <laughs> it's just from working in those big studios for all those years. You know, last time we talked, I was, I was listening back to that conversation. We were talking about natural disasters. We were talking about flooding. We were talking about fires. And it made me think of this question, which is, if you did have a natural disaster today, hypothetically, and all your gear was wiped out. If you had to start again, would you do your gear set up differently? Would you make different decisions? Because I know that there are those of us who have been around for a while. We collect stuff and sometimes things hang around that maybe have outlived their usefulness, but we still carry them around with us or put them to use because we have them. So if you had to start fresh today, would it be different? I think if I had this gear or caught up in a fire or whatever, and I had to rethink a studio, I think I would simplify it even more than it is. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because slowly but surely over time, I've always fought the technology until I'm comfortable with it. And then I let go and I say, okay, I'll leave that go. I'll leave that. Ex I'll let go of the external clock. The Pro Tools one is fine. Things like that, that I think, no, no, I can't possibly do it. But then you try it and you think, oh, it's, it's okay. And I was like that I went for a, a demonstration of Pro Tools, or it wasn't called Pro Tools then. It was called Sonic Solutions, I think, or something. And it was at Westlake Audio. And it was when I was doing Tears for Fears in the 90s, I guess. And I walked in and this guy had a screen and he said, and here's how we do it. And, and I watched this demonstration. And being a, a Luddite, I said, nah, I don't want to see audio. I don't want to. Yeah, I like, no, I'm not interested. Thanks very much. And I sort of thought, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> and I resisted it for ages and until the writing was on the wall and it was like, hey, listen, if you don't know how to work Pro Tools, you're not going to have a career for much longer. So so I invest, invest, invested in a Pro Tools rig, got it set up in my dining room in, in uh, Studio City in California and had somebody explain the basics and just sort of played with it for a while until I got my head around it. And I think it was probably uh, an album I did with Goldfinger. And uh, it was the first time I used it. And the band, of course, being young and John Feldman was like really with it with all that stuff. They were, he was fast, way faster on the Pro Tools than I was. And I learned a lot from him about how it worked. Uh, I used Pro Tools on the Aussie record Down to Earth in 2002, but I was always very slow to, to accept these things. And now I have my studio and the, one of the things I wanted was I, of course, said, I don't want to just mix in the box. I wanted to have a hybrid system. I want to sub everything through an analog chain. And I have my tone lock set up on the left here. And 
the Tone Lux feeds by George Massenberg EQ and a, and, a, and a fake SSL compressor, and then it goes back into Pro Tools. And as I said a second ago, I have an, an Apogee clock, and I've, I don't use that anymore. And I've got some outboard EQ. I used to be changing the EQ, and now I'm slowly like, okay, well, let's just leave certain pairs of stereo, like some that are a little brighter that I know, like I have one that's overheads that has a higher frequency and some that I leave flatter. So when I'm routing the outputs, I can, if it's symbols or something that needs the extra high end, I can route it to that. But slowly but surely, I'm relying less and less on the analog stuff. And I haven't done it, but I would like to entertain, of course, and so many people do it now, but just have a system with some great monitors and some faders and a great fast computer and all the plugins I need and try and scrap all the outs the hardware i'd love to try it and it, and if i had the place burnt down i would be forced into doing it that's the point because i'm not going to get rid of this now because i lo- i know it and i love it but like you said if i was forced into it i think i would try and see how it went to do this i mean i remember building my first room in north hollywood with with my gear when i first purchased the tone like stuff and it was the first time i'd ever worked outside of a traditional studio control room with a big SSL or a Neve or an API. And I was really scared. And it was a (laughs) freaky time. I would be going back to the car and listening again and thinking, is this going to work? And it did. It worked. So I know you can do it, but it's uh, just a gradual thing. I think it's like pulling it away. It's like taking away the armor one by one. And really, I've always believed in the fact that our success at what we do is so reliant on the material that we're working with, the songs. The songs are going to be good or bad, whether you're using outboard hybrid systems or not. If you land and you get a song to mix, if it's I Just Died In Your Arms Tonight by Cutting Crew or a song that's just a classic like that, it's going to be fine as long as you take care of it and you love it and you make it sound make it sound the best it can be. And yeah, I'm, um, I've always believed, you know, Best Cure for a Bad Mix is a great song, and I, I say that every time, and I, I firmly believe it. I want to discuss Music Cares in the Recording Academy just a little bit with you. You seem to be uh, fairly active in that world, and I've heard you talk about, and I really, really love this, what you have to say is, you know, basically, most of us who work in music, well, all of us, really, we're here because of those artists. And if they're not here, then... What what are we doing? You know, are we making, we we might be doing other audio tasks. So you have a passion for what I understand about Music Cares and uh, that advocacy element of the Recording Academy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the wonderful things about being able to have a career this long and to be in a situation where you can financially be able to give your time for free because... I've served two terms now as trustee. I've just termed out. But, you know, you give a lot of your time. But one of the great things about it is you can actually give back to the artists that have given you a career in the first place. Because like like you pointed out, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the great musicians and the great artists and the great music that I've had an opportunity to work for. So given the opportunity to advocate for them or do something to give back to them, especially during COVID-19, is very important to me. I've been able to take advantage of some of the friendships I have. Like during COVID-19, I was helping Music Cares with an auction and I was lucky enough to be able to email Robert Plant and say, 
is there anything that you could give us to auction for part of this? And he gave a guitar and he got it signed by himself and Tony Iommi. I managed to reach out to Willie Nelson's people and get an acoustic guitar. And You know, this shows you how far back you can go. I, I assisted for Hans Zimmer on an album that he was producing for Sally Oldfield in the 80s. And I've stayed in contact. Not very. I'm not very close to him. I love his work. I'd love to be closer to Hans. He's, he's wonderful. But I've stayed in contact with him, should I say. And I was able to write to him and the same thing. And he gave me uh, the score for Gladiator and signed it. And he also gave one of his guitars. So I collected all this stuff. Plus, I went to all the producers I've known, whether it be Steve Lillywhite or Larry Klein, you know, people of that level, and asked them to give a Zoom call to uh, an engineer and they'll be auctioned off as well. And um, we raised a lot of money and I felt good about doing that because I can take advantage of these friendships and they were happy to do it. And it, I, I just like to do that. And the opportunity to do that is uh, something I just felt I really needed to do, to be honest, to, to feel good about myself. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating when we take a step back, you know, I went to go see a uh, Black Widow it was first my first movie at a theater in in quite some time last week, and in th those type of movies, the, a lot of the superhero movies, there's always some scene at the end after the credits. So we stay and we watch all the credits roll by, and it was stunning to me. I know it's a no brainer. Yes, a lot of people work on movies, but as the different units in the different countries, different sound and lighting, and all the people that go into that. And I think whether you're in doing video games or movies or working on music as audio professionals, I think it's really important that we, uh, we get out of our own little audio bubble and we realize there's a bigger picture here, excuse the pun, there's a bigger picture here and we need to make sure that we are, when given the opportunity, advocating on behalf of musicians and filmmakers and game designers, et cetera, et cetera, because... In the end, it all comes back around to us. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah, it's it's such a crazy time, isn't it? I mean, if somebody told me in the 80s that people would be paying $4 for a bottle of water and music would be free, it would have just blown my... I would have just laughed at them. You know, that didn't make it... That makes no sense. It still makes no sense, let's be honest. Yeah. I don't know how we've ended up like this. I know for, for a fact that my interest in spending hours in a studio producing records is gone now. I mean, I don't know why I would do that. I'm much happier to just work from my own studio and continue to do what I love to do here. But the idea of going in and basically giving so much of your time for a percentage of a record that's not going to sell anything anyway, it's just, uh, I'd rather just, just be part of the mixing and have a shorter relationship with it than, uh, and do that anymore and it's sad that it's sad that it's it's become that way i mean occasionally there'll be something i just did a record recently with a, an artist in austin called jackie venson who's a fantastic blues guitar player and singer and we cut a record and we did it quite quickly at arlen studios which is a very legendary studio in the center of austin but it's uh it's very few and far between that i can get the enthusiasm and that's because of the nature of the industry itself now i mean it must be so difficult for young engineers to be able to to make a living. And anything that I can do, whether it's speaking on behalf of musicians or music makers in Congress or at local government, and we do a lot of stuff where we go to the state capitol and I sit with the legislators and 
take artists with me and say, hey, look, this is, this is what Austin's supposed to be a music town. We need your help here. Let us be the resource to you. Ask us. You know, we need to tell you what's actually going on. And I like to do that. It's fun. And if it, if it can benefit even just a couple of people, it's, it's definitely worth it. I wanted to ask you a little bit. These two areas kind of blend into one another. You mentioned uh, going into a studio and getting points on something that's not going to sell. These days, you got to know your value, but at the same time, you can't price yourself out of the work. So, and I'm assuming you, in conjunction with Sandy Robertson at World's End, your manager of many years, that you guys work it out about like what's what's a fair price for a mix these days, knowing full well as we discussed, predicting, because you're, you're not just mixing it, you're adding to it. There's production value you're bringing to the table. So how do you balance that in this day and age? It's, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's the, always the most difficult thing to do because, you know, at some level, your decision on whether you want to mix something is going to be based on how much you like the song and how much you like the project. So if there's something you really want to do and it's important to you, you'll probably compromise your price more than if it's something that you, you think is pretty good, but it's not, you know, it's okay, I can get that done. So there's definitely things that you really want to do, or sometimes if it's for an artist that could elevate your career or get you into another whole new world, then you, you have to be prepared to compromise. And that's why for a while there, I, I try not to do them anymore, but for a while there, people would spec mix because they would say, you know, I, I really want to work with you. I'm prepared to do a mix for nothing to show you what I can do. And I've I, I done my fair share of those. I haven't really done any for a few years now. But why not? If it's a project that you think is going to really elevate your position, then you're going to be prepared to do the first one for free. Why not? Put your name in the ring, you know? I, 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 even back as far as the uh, 2000s, Bands who are successful know that you need them more than they need you. Because it's always about that, isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> who's calling the shots? If you've got a new young artist and they really want someone who's mixed records for 30 years and had some success at it to do it, then maybe they're prepared to go the extra mile. And if you, as an engineer, really found this band and there's a lot of hot producers in town and hot, they, they, all the top mixers want to do it and you want to go for it, you're not going to outprice yourself because you want the gig. So there's a real supply-demand curve there, very, a very simple one. From, from Pearl Jam onwards, if I mixed a project, Sandy would ask for a 1% royalty on records I mixed. Nowadays, sadly, I don't really bother with that 1% royalty because it costs more money in paperwork than what you'd get back in return half the time. So I, I don't generally go down that route unless the artist is in, in, at a certain level. But back in the time of U2, they knew full well that working on a U2 record was a wonderful thing to have on your resume. And they, they weren't prepared to pay royalties on their mixing. Even though I'd worked with Pearl Jam and David Bowie and Robert Plant all before that, it really was a case of, well, if you want to do the record, then this is, this is the deal. And, and of course, I wanted to do the record, so that was the deal, and it was fine. And they paid me very well. It's not, I'm not complaining or anything like that, but you see what I mean? It's like they were in command of the situation there. So I was prepared to give up that, my point on that record quite, quite happily because I wanted to do the record. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> And once you do, then you, of course, can say, well, you know, I've worked with you too. And I mean, exactly, that, yeah. that just levels, you know, that just like clears the path right there. And even, even back then, it was interesting because even as far back as then, it wasn't the, the sort of getting involved the way that I do now. But when I mixed songs like 
stuck in a moment. It's always the very difficult balance as a as a, a mixing engineer as to if you put something onto their recording, are they going to take it badly and say, what the hell are you doing messing with our stuff? How dare you? Mm-hmm. So in a way, you sort of don't want to sort of speak up ahead of time. You just would rather present them with what sounds great in your opinion and then tell them, look, I tried something. I can mute it if you don't like it. Because you can always mute. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. If you're going the extra mile and an artist sees that you're going the extra mile and they particularly don't like one bit, it's very easy to hit the mute button. So with Stuck in a Moment, I um, did a lot to the arrangement. I changed sections up. I added percussion. I I added some backing vocals. I did all sorts of things. And I never talked about it. And they just said, yeah, it sounds great. And they loved it. But um, we never talked about the fine detail. And I often wondered, because there's so many people working on U2 records, I often wondered whether they'd forgotten whether they'd recorded that or whether someone else had thought they'd recorded it. But it was there was a lot more than just mixing going on even back then with the song The Ground Beneath Her Feet. Bono called me and told me that he was very unhappy with the... He said, I don't like the way the drums are. And they had some electronic drum feel. And it was a song called The Ground Beneath Her Feet. Beautiful U2 song. It was, never on, it was actually one of the extra tracks on All That You Can't Leave Behind, but it was from a movie called The Million Dollar Hotel. And it was, it's just such a, a beautiful song. Lovely pedal steel from Daniel Lamoire. And it's just really great. And anyway, when I got to the studio, I sort of tried to figure out what it was that they didn't like about the program drums. And I figured out what I would do. And I just rented a, a little drum kit and played a walk on the wild side type feel and, and then looped it and switched between the programming and this sort of different feel. And they went for it. And uh, yeah, it's funny. You could do quite a lot. And that's sort of just, just mixing. <laughs> that's mixed by, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because when you're dealing with someone like you too at, at such a high level, I mean, they have such a massive organization of people, I would assume. There's a ton of money. There's to the point where they're transcending all of that because they're just like, well, what's going to make the most sense? And they don't seem to be caught up in the same minutia and identity crisis that, say, a younger artist who yeah. hasn't been as successful would, where they say, oh, you took you took the shaker out? Why'd you take the shaker out? Whereas a band like you 2 would be like, oh, yeah, oh, that's awesome. Or no, yeah. we're not going to use that. But also they, because of they, back then, they were at a point where the mixing process was almost just another way to sort of, let's hear how this song's sounding. So you could say, let's send it to um, Steve Lillywhite and he'll mix it. And then they could listen to it and go, okay, now we know that we like the verse. We need to work on the chorus. So then they go back and work on it a lot longer. And then somebody else might do a mix and they'll think, oh, I like what he did with the chorus then. Let's, let's use that and then use that and that. And then somebody else might be doing another mix and they'll, they're gathering information. And the mixing process is just a way of hearing it. You know what I mean? It's like, let's hear another perspective on that. Let's hear that. So it's very challenging working with them because they can spend two or three weeks on a song and then you mix it and it could take you a week to mix it. And then they figure out after hearing the mix that they'd rather not have played it that way and start recording it again. And you'd be at dinner and you, I remember thinking, I said to the, uh, the road manager, I said, Sam, are they, is that? And he said, yeah. And I said, but we finished that one. And he said, oh, no, Bono didn't like the way the groove was, so they're recutting it. And it was back to square one. And, uh, you know, because they got the money and the time to get it right. And uh, I, good luck to them, I say. And I, and I bet in when you're, you're deep into your career, like you are, you have 
methods and ways and that you prefer to work that you do your best work. But when it comes to a higher level band, I'm sure if one is dealing with a U2 or a Metallica, you change your workflow to adapt to them, I mm. would assume. Yeah. And that there's no like, well, I'd like to mix in my own studio at my house. It's like, well, you have to completely just surrender and say, what do you need? Yeah, that's right. I can remember when I got the opportunity to work on the Tin Machine record, I know there's a lot of studios that I would be a lot more comfortable in than going to Mountain in Montreux in Switzerland. And I'd never worked in that studio. I'd never been in there and had a big old Neve and the band would set up in the casino and there were tie lines. And I just felt quite scared, to be honest, in there. And it was quite a challenging experience, to be honest. But um, like you said, you you basically have to get on with it and uh, figure it out and make it great. <laughs> yeah, and I guess one could just, you know, take with them the gear that they are security blankets, you know, our monitors or certain pieces of gear or microphones that help you get a, a baseline of operating. And then at that point, you just have to just say, okay, it's David Bowie, well, and yeah. tin or Tin Machine. Sometimes being taken out of your comfort zone leads to creativity, you know, makes you think a different way. And how am I going to make this work? Sometimes relying on the same tricks is, is lazy. So I think, in fact, there's, there's a, I work a lot with the band Him from Finland. And I remember that one of the last records we mixed together, we did it in London. And this was after I had my studios in Texas. And I said to Vila, look, it'll cost, cost you a lot less money and I'll be in my comfort zone if, if I do it here in my studio. And he said, well, that's, that's why I want to do it in London. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, because I want to take you out of your comfort zone because I think it'll be a lot more fun and the record will be more interesting because of it. And I said, okay, fair enough. So we, we both, he flew in from Finland and I came in from Texas. So, you know, there is, there is definitely something to be said for being stripped away of all the um, things that, uh, and the tips, the tricks of the trade that you know and be forced to be creative. Do you still live in Austin proper? Well, when I say proper, it's 16 miles outside. It's a place called Bee Cave, but I can be in Austin in 20 minutes. Okay, okay. Do you have an opportunity to interface or network much with your fellow audio professionals there in the area? I used to. Uh, well, I still do because of the academy we, with the P&E wing. We would often have meetups and things. And uh, I'm also part of another nonprofit called Black Fret, Fret as in guitar, black fret. And we help a lot of artists get started in this area. It's a great organization. What they do basically is it's a membership organization and people who love music, who feel that rock and roll music or just music in general has the same value as the ballet or the opera or classical music. So they want to be patrons of the arts. So they buy a membership and they get to see a lot of local bands and at the end of the year, they get to choose their favorite bands they've seen because they get to see quite a few during the year, private functions, and meet the bands. They choose their favorites, and then the money's given to the artists in the form of grants. And the grants are unlocked by the artists, so they don't just get given a check that they can go and buy a new TV or something like that. They have to make, every time they play a show or every time they make an EP or every time they make an album, they unlock the dollars of their grant. And, you know, they get fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 grants. And... They've given, we've given away like, I think it's like nearly $2 million now over the space of five or six years. I mean, it's, it's quite phenomenal. And that's the thing is that when the music industry changed and we talked about it earlier and music became free, the actual record buying and music buying public 
didn't actually even want this. They never said, I don't want to pay money for music. This is this is a disgrace. No one ever had a problem with buying albums. We were fine with it. And that was taken away from us. And that's why a lot of people, especially in Austin, where, as you know, in the big corporations, if you give to a charity, a lot of times like the big companies like Google or Apple, they'll double down on your contribution. So if you wanted to join Black Fret, and I think it's like $1,500, you only have to pay $750 and your company will pay the other $750. So a lot of people who are in a, in a great situation and have a good job and love music, they're happy to pay money to be part of this organization. And as I said, they never had a problem buying music in the first place. So it's a win-win for everyone and it's, it's a wonderful organization. And a lot of the engineers and producers in the area are a part of that because we have an advisory board. So mm -hmm. we help the artists, give them you know, advice on, look, if you're going to go into a studio, make sure you don't waste your money on this and that. And we, we have round tables and discuss things. So I get to meet people through that too. Yeah. Former WCA guest Chris Shaw and Steve Shady. Yeah. Chris is part of the Academy. I see Chris a lot. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Steve Shady and, and his connection to the Willie Nelson camp and all that, they're there. And, of course, Austin is home to one of my favorite young bands, the Black Pumas. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely love. Well, we're also Black Fret artists at one point. Interesting, huh? Well, the uh, music is, is still very, very important. So I'm really happy to hear you talk about these uh, just helping to foster artists through nonprofits and through things like Music Cares. So audience for you, I will definitely put some links in the show notes that are going to be relevant to uh, that, this conversation about this if you want that's to great. investigate that, that would more. Be great. I also, um, something else I wanted to tell you that's being actually launched at this minute is I finally, after <laughs> bloody ages, finally I've revamped my website, timparmer.com now. And uh, it's going to, it's going up today, actually. Uh, I don't know whether it's actually gone live yet. I'll, I I'll think it has, because I'm actually, it changed from about an hour ago to now. Okay, well, that you've seen it then. You're probably the first person to visit. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's, it's finally gone live. Yeah, so it works for the iPhone as well. I've spent ages on that. And uh, yeah, if you could put a link to that, I'd be happy. Oh, absolutely. That'll be in there. But it took, it's funny because I wanted to have, you know, everything in one place. The interview that we did last time, for working class audio should be on the podcast page. It is. I just checked. And um, <laughs> the discography page now, I finally updated it and that took took a while. And I'm only up to, I think I'm up to letter C because the, the company that built it, they put all the albums in and a picture of the album sleeve. And I said, look, I, I don't expect you to do this, but I'm going to put a link to Spotify for each album. I'm going to put a link to Wikipedia. And then what I did on the record, and I've got to about B, I think so far, but if you click on each artist, it takes you to the albums and then you can click on the album and then go straight to Spotify or you can read about the record. And I just wanted to um, have everything in one place finally and all yeah. the interviews and some fun photos and stuff like that. And I'm really happy with the way it's come out, but it, it took us ages. <laughs> you know, Tim, I, I got to say, you've done some heavy duty stuff. And what I love about you is you're very approachable. You don't carry any arrogance with you whatsoever. And I really appreciate that. And it's interesting because it's come up in a few interviews over the years where your name has come up as people saying, oh, yeah, man, Tim Palmer, man, he really inspired me and gave me a couple bits of advice. And 
And it's a pleasure to talk to you again. I'm, I'm in some point, God, I hope it's in the near future that you and I meet in person. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd love, love to, yeah. I'd love to have a, have a beer or a coffee with you at some point. The things you've talked about and, and your passion really resonates with me. So that's why I was anxious to have you back on the show. And it's, uh, it's really great to see you again. I'm grateful to, ha- to be back. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Believe me. Like I said, audience, timpalmer.com, that link, as well as some uh, link for some advocacy stuff will be in the show notes. So please check that out and follow up on that and uh, reach out to Tim if you have any questions that he could answer for you. But uh, other than that, Tim, thank you again. Cheers. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Tim Palmer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for being here with me today. If you do like the show, remember, head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review or maybe write something nice about the show. Either way, it helps out the show greatly, and I would sincerely appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.